Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 24 of Just Slab Podcast, the pound for pound number one tennis podcast in the game. Your hosts, Stephen Duca, Alex Makatsaria, and joined by a very special guest slash celebrity in the building, <laughs> Mr. Greg Johnstone. How are you, my friend? I'm doing wonderful. I, I, celebrity is arguably the loosest term you could have used. Me, but I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Uh, we, I mean, listen, right now, you're uh, you're what everybody's talking about on, especially in the tennis world on, uh, on social media. So you're, you're killing it. So I think celebrity is the right word to use. Uh, we'll, we'll go with minor TikTok somebody. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Steven, I wish uh, Stephen was, when, before we started recording, we were like, we got to get like a little red carpet thing going. And all the, the, oh, the, yeah. The, I was on the... I was on the phone. I was like, because for everybody that doesn't know, Alex is our IT guy. He's so I'm like, I'm like, can you get like some sort of like red carpet like flowing or something for uh be kidding me. For, no, I'm, for I'm gonna be if if anyone seeing this even knows who I am, I'll be stunned. So that's no. uh, we'll see if I can be known by one person before we go to celebrity. Listen, anybody listen, so to begin, I think we should give uh a little shout out to our our guest last week, I guess, and uh one of your close friends, uh, NCAA coach, Mr. Frank Russo. Um, he says he he swears that he's funnier than you. Now, I I I love Frank. Frank's one of the funniest people I've ever known. He makes me crack up. I've seen your TikTok. You're really really funny. Um, to be fair, Frank thinks he's funnier than everybody. So I don't know if you wanted to address that. And oh, maybe... I'm, I'm I'm more than more than happy to address it. I just don't know how much time we have. I, I mean, you. <laughs> It, it, there's, but Frank, as, as much as I love him, I was the best man at his wedding. He's, he's my best friend in the world. If you ask Frank who's the best at anything, yeah. anything, yep. Frank Russo's name is going to be at or incredibly near the top of, of any <laughs> list. So it could be most handsome. It could be funniest. It could be most athletic. F. Russo is near the top of all of his lists. And 100%. unfortunately, we all know the truth that he's uh, <laughs> middle of the road at best. You know, it's it, here's what I'll here's what I'll say because you guys are both very funny. It's a different kind of funny. Like if 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 people went on to go see like your TikTok and 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 by the way, I know you come up with all that stuff by yourself and it's 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 really well done. So congratulations. But it's your comedy is very like it's like SNL funny. It's like professionally funny. You know, Frank Russo is like the kind of like hundred people at a comedy club like they're all pissed drunk and uh, and they're going bananas. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's well, he's, if, if you find getting screamed at amusing <laughs> in, in a hilarious way, he's about as funny as it gets. I, I've, I've asked him for the longest time to, to do a podcast by himself where he just tells stories, just tell stories about whether it's his sports betting, his sports experiences, whatever, because the way, the way he just speaks and the, and the things he says, He's just the, the his mannerisms are just hilarious as well. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, and so we're very thankful for uh, for him introducing to you. Um, so just a little background for people, you know, people to know, um, you know, how you got into tennis. You know, we'll, we'll talk about you know you playing uh, in college and then moving on to coaching, but sort of let's go, let's take it all the way back in the beginning in uh, in good old England uh, and uh, and how how that started for you. Well, let's, let's assume it was raining. It was probably <laughs> raining on that day. And, um, and actually what happened, so the first time I ever played tennis, um, I was being babysat by my next door neighbor. And their two kids had a tennis lesson. And I literally just tagged along with them. I was about, let's say, maybe five or six years old. And 
I don't remember this experience. This is just what I was told because I, I had the same coaches from age six to 16. And they literally said, I walked out there. They were like, yeah, here's a racket. And, you know, like you can see with most half talented kids, I just sort of walked out there and went, oh, this, this is what you do. And they went, you, this needs to be your sport. <laughs> um, so I did that. I, 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 you know, I was into it a little bit, but like most kids in England, you play soccer or football at the same time. And then sort of by about age 11 or 12, I was an incredibly small kid. And so in, in soccer, I found I was sort of getting pushed around all over the place and started, started getting pretty good at tennis, you know, maybe top, top hundred in the country at that age sort of thing. And then when I was 13, um, I really just sort of went, all right, this is, this is the sport I love. I love doing it and started playing four hours a day after school, couldn't get enough of it, started playing before school and you know, sort of one thing led to another. You, you start getting a little bit better, top 50 in the country, top 30, even up to top 20. And um, then when I was 16, um, sort of the idea of college tennis was quite new then. Um, there wasn't many English, British kids that were coming over. Uh, I think there was only about four or five of us in my age group that, that actually made the switch. But I certainly wasn't good enough to go pro. And I was like, I think I've got a brain. I'd like to continue to use it a little bit. And so this whole notion of college tennis came around and I was like, wow, that's, that seems awesome. The only thing was I didn't know anything about it at all. Um, I didn't know the difference between when I was talking to UCLA, Louisville or Moorhead State, which is where I ended up going. I just heard Division One took, you know, the 90% the scholarship that Moorhead State offered and, you know, remember landing in Lexington, Kentucky and then driving 45 minutes to nowhere <laughs> and getting to Moorhead and being like, wow, this is this is not England anymore. Um, and that was, that's kind of how I ended up there, you know, just worked very hard as a kid. I wasn't the most talented, just put in the work and, um, got quite fortunate that, you know, Moorhead State University found me. What type of, what type of information did you have access to before you went to Moorhead State? Cause I mean, if you just chose based on like, did, was there any sort of thing you knew about it other than the 90% or the 90% the scholarship that kind of attracted you to that specific place? So the only thing I, so there was an, an agent that I had, basically it was this company that helped place you into certain universities based on your level. And they recommended, you know, the, the power five conferences, but they failed to mention that the most you, you know, you're going to get as a freshman going into those schools is like a 25% scholarship. And I was like, mm -hmm. you, you realize we're broke, right? Like we have no money. So then I started looking at the next tier under that. And all I knew was division one. Um, you know, I thought the schools were just bigger. That was all. I didn't know there was a massive difference in level or what, how many t-shirts you were going to get or how good the facilities were. I was just like, Oh yeah, sure. Moorhead state sounds good. And then, because I'm a scumbag is why <laughs> Moorhead really was the one that, uh, that got chosen as well. I remember being at a tournament the summer when I was choosing, like the summer as I was about to leave. And it was just a massive joke that there was this one university called Moorhead and it was in the hardwood capital of the world. And I was like, 
it's, it's almost rude not to go to this university <laughs> at this point. And so, honest to God, that is a big reason why I ended up going there, because I thought the name of the school was funny. That's and hilarious. That's, that's that so it. funny. And then, so, okay, so then you played at Moorhead State. Did you, what, what were you on the, in the lineup? Were you, I mean, because if you were top 20 in the country in the UK, I mean, surely you were, yeah, so, you know. So, so I went straight in. I played number one as a freshman. Okay. Um, my freshman year, I went 19 and six uh, at number one. Um, you know, we didn't have the greatest schedule. Probably out of those 19 wins, you know, seven of them were, were gimmies. Um, sophomore year was when things really started clicking. Uh, I went 25 and one at number one as a sophomore. Wow. Um, I beat Kentucky's number two who was sort of ranked about 40 in the country at the time. Louisville's number one, who was ranked 30 in the country. Um, you know, I, really, I, just, I remember that was the best, that was the best tennis time in my life. I, I literally felt like I couldn't lose. Um, right. Ended up ranked in singles then. And it was after that year that um, actually the Moorhead State coach left. I, didn't, I wasn't even considering transferring. I was so happy at Moorhead. I had my best friends, were still some of my closest friends there. And when the coach left, um, I was kind of like, oh, is this, you know, have I sort of done everything that can be done here? Um, you know, people started saying, you know, if you transfer to a power five now, you'll get a real scholarship. You may even be able to go and try play pro at this point. Biggest mistake I ever made. Um, I listened to a lot of noise that I probably shouldn't have listened to. And, you know, I was incredibly happy at Moorhead. I think I would have been just, I probably would. Oh, I know for a fact I would have been better off if I stayed. Um, but ended up transferring to Kentucky, uh, as a junior and, uh, borderline forgot how to play tennis at that point. <laughs> Everything just literally, literally fell apart in, in catastrophic ways that you can only, you can only make up in fairy tales. It was, I, I went from literally feeling like I couldn't lose to feeling like I couldn't hit a ball inside the lines. It was what? Dr drastically so what bad. Oh, I got the yips. Uh, 100% got the yips. I went from, I remember I used to count matches that I wouldn't lose serve in a row. Like I was just hitting 120s, 130s, bombs all over the place. You know, I'm not that tall, but I could, I could hit it hard and I could hit the lines. And just some, some stuff happened in my personal life that I wasn't really prepared for at that age. And I lost my mind, lost my mind. And went to the point, I, I remember, this is so bad. I remember I'm literally playing against LSU. I started off, they wanted me to play one in the lineup because I was ranked and I was a junior. And the best player was, was this guy named Bruno Agostinelli, who was, uh, ended up being Shapovalov's coach. Um, God oh, rest wow. his soul. He actually died in a motorcycle accident. But um, he was going to be the number one on the team, but he was a freshman. So they wanted me to play ahead of him. And then I was playing like crap. So they moved me down and then I couldn't win. So they moved me down and we're playing LSU and I'm playing number six. And I, I can't remember. His, I could look at the guy I played was awful. I mean, he was awful, this guy. And I was hitting serves that weren't reaching the net is how bad the yips got on my serve. I went from a guy I was counting matches where I didn't lose serve to the ball wouldn't reach the net when I was swinging as hard as I could. And I just went, what, what am I doing? And then at that point, I just, I remember I just checked out completely, mentally lost it. 
And uh, yeah, just needed to sort of hit the life reset button at 21 years old, which luckily I was given another chance to go back to Moorhead after that and get my act together. But um, yeah, looking at it, 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 it was a great life experience because it's helped me as a coach. Because when I see kids struggle, um, I can relate to them a little bit more. You know, looking back, the, the biggest issue I see in that whole experience was I, I had no help. Nobody, no coaches, no teammates, no one at Kentucky offered to be like, yo, there's something majorly wrong with this kid's psyche. You know, he's a talented kid, but we got to help him. And I wasn't offered that help. So I've had a couple of kids over the years have some issues that resulted in physical issues all starting upstairs. And because of that experience, I've been able to say, listen, you, you don't become a bad player overnight. Let's address what's going on. And, you know, I've been able to help them out. Right. So was the, was the only reaction that Kentucky, like, so you were going through those, you know, through, you know, experiencing the yips, Kentucky, their only reaction was to just move you down the lineup. They didn't have any sort of engagement with you. Try to, I mean, nothing at all. No, I, to be honest, the, the head coach at the time, just he just made it worse. Wow. He literally was just like, you know, he would have, we would have team meetings after a loss. Like we lost to Ohio State 4-3. I lost to the guy ranked 22 in the country who I, I could have beaten. He wasn't that good. He, he had a perfect matchup. Me. He was a little guy. I could have just blown right through him and, and I lost. And the coach was like, I've brought, you know, said to the whole team, yeah, I've brought in a guy who I was hoping was going to do a much better job for us. And he's letting us down. And I'm looking around going, yeah, he's, he's talking about me, everyone. This guy. <laughs> That's if, insane. If, you, if you don't know who he's talking <laughs> about, he's blaming me for our problems right now. And uh, yeah, it was just, again, look, it, it sucked at the time and it took a, it took a while to, to get past, but you know, all these sort of things, like character building and you look back and laugh eventually. That's crazy. That's insane. It's like, hey guys, so I know we lost a tough, uh, tough match today. Don't want to name any names, Greg. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but and, uh... and, well, actually, it was even worse because so so one of my best friends also is Greg Anderson, Kevin Anderson's brother. He was on the team with me, and at the same time was having a similar experience. So he was a freshman, I was a junior, and he was brought in, and the coach literally said. I'm waiting for you to become your brother. Now, Kevin was ranked <laughs> two in the country behind John Isner at the time. Oh and Greg God. was 148 pounds and just not six foot seven. And yeah. so to your point, the coach couldn't even just say, oh, yeah, I'm here blaming Greg because the two of us would then look at each other and be like, well, well which one? So he'd be even <laughs> more specific. He'd be like, guys, I've, I've really let the team down here. We're blaming Greg. Johnstone for this, <laughs> as it just in case. Cheers, mate. Anderson didn't play, so cheers, yeah. coach. Yeah. But, oh uh, my god. But but what I was told, you know, that he ended up retiring. That coach a few years later, and the guy that was my assistant is still the head coach of Kentucky now, and he, and he was great. Um, awesome. He just didn't. He just didn't know how to deal with me. Was was the problem. Um, but I was told that some kids really responded well to his coaching. His name was his name was Dennis Emery. I hold nothing against the guy. Um, he some like some kids. So he had. Um, have you ever heard of Jesse Witten? Jesse Witten played there. He made the final of NCAA's. Actually made the third round of the U.S. Open once. He was there the four years before I got there as their unequivocal number one. He was a superstar. He responded really well 
to that sort of coaching. Like, I'm just going to abuse you, tell you how bad you are. You're going to show me that I'm wrong. Unfortunately, I was the exact opposite. You told me I sucked. I, I believed you and shriveled up into a little ball. And again, just sort of turning that back into how I coach now, I found that most kids believe what you say as a coach. Their right. role is to look up to you and trust you. And so um, I don't really do the negative feedback unless it's really warranted. You know, I think gassing kids up and making them feel good about themselves, as long as they're working hard, is, is the way to go rather than tell them, you know, you're letting me down. Show me why I should put any faith in you. Right, right. And so, you, you, you know, you mentioned coaching. Like after college, did you have any thoughts about trying to go pro or did you no. want did you always know you wanted to be you wanted to be a coach? No. Um, so I, there was that window where I was I say I was good for, you know, a year um, where I considered going pro. After everything fell off, I was like, this, you know, I've, this sport's not for me. Uh, you know, the amount of Bud Light I was putting into my body probably <laughs> prevented me from big going pro as well. Um, but no, you had, a, you had and, a barrel, you had a barrel going. Yeah, a day. Uh, I was putting a barrel, a barrel down a day, and then yeah, my my buddy, it's funny, my buddy still makes fun of me. Um, I was playing a, a home match my my fifth year. And he said, you were beating this French kid. And all we could focus on in the stands was just this impeccable little gut you had going <laughs> on. I was, yeah, I knew, knew how to do it. Knew how to do it back then. Um, but no, after I graduated, I, I actually swore that I would never touch a tennis racket again. Oh, wow. I was, I was so done with it. Um, and I happened to graduate right when the economy collapsed in 2008, 2009. And the only job I could really get that paid anything more than minimum wage was my former teammate at Moorhead was working at a club here in New York and said, you know, entry level coaching salary here's, you know, 60,000, 65,000 a year. Do you want that? And I was like, absolutely. You know, yeah, all right. sign me up. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. And then, um, yeah. And then really things just sort of went from there. You know, I realized I was like, wow, I can actually, you know, the, the way I used to look up to my coaches who were the most important people in my life, they guided me not just in tennis, but socially and, and relationships. I used to confide in them. I was like, wow, I've got teenagers looking at me like this. Maybe I could be that guy. And then once I started really helping kids and, and seeing some kids just improve, not just as tennis players, but as people, they would come to me about school advice. And I was like, you know, I've, I've messed up at every turn in my life. So at least I can tell you what not to do. Mm. Um, that was sort of when I fell in love with it at that point. And, you know, things just escalated pretty quickly from there. How quickly, how quick was the turnaround time when you, I mean, cause you're, if you're going from, I never want to touch a racket again in my life to then falling back in love with the sport, how, how long did that process take where you were like, okay, I actually, I, I see what I loved to begin with. Um, nine, nine months. Okay. It was, yeah, I, so when I finished, so I graduated that May, I went and did a, a, a summer coaching job, just working a summer camp like I'd done most summers through the August. And then I didn't do anything from August 08 till May 2009. And when I started coaching full time in May 2009, it, you know, it, it was a matter, a matter of weeks. And I was like, oh, wow, like, this is this is more than just feeding balls to kids that don't care. Like this is this is real. I'm involved in their life. I'm an important part of their life. 
And when there was that level of value to it, it everything turned pretty quickly. That's amazing. And what, and so do you coach, I mean, was your primary focus when you went into coaching kids then? Like, were you coaching kind of young uh, individuals who are aspiring to be, um, go college or were playing juniors at the time or were, you know, trying to go pro? What was the kind of your demographic when it came to so, your coaching? So when I first started coaching full time, I started just working with high performance kids and you know, working with some adults in the mornings because that's how you get enough hours to, to survive. Um, and my, the, the niche that I found that I, I was good at was the, how do you help these kids get to where I got to from where they're at right now? Meaning, how do I motivate them to work hard? H how do I get them excited about coming to practice every day? How do I get them to do the stuff they don't want to do? That's where I, that's what I needed in a coach. And that's what I felt, you know, particularly these, these kids in Westchester, New York, they really needed, you know, a, a kick in the ass sometimes just to be like, all right, you, you got to motivate, you know, you can't just swan your way through this. And, um, and then it's almost worked backwards. Like I started really just working with high school kids. And then after a year or so, I started working with middle schoolers, 11 to 14 and being like, all right, well, I can't talk to you guys about what parties you're going to, but I can talk about how you can make some certain decisions from 11, 12 and 13 that are really going to help you when you're 14 and upwards. And then I'll be able to help you then. Um, and then I even started even younger, eight years old, where I, I by that point, I'd really learned the technical side of coaching. And that's, that's sort of where I made my name was by that point, I'd become a very good technical coach. And so I was able to, coach these eight, seven, eight, nine-year-olds and be like, all right, I'm going to give you the absolute best foundation I can from a technical standpoint so that when I then start talking to you about training habits and tactics and then life habits, it's all just going to make sense. And um, by that point, I actually was the director of an academy. So I was able to implement all these ideas I had. And, um, and that's really why I think everything went very well. It's just because I, I had a clear structure of how I think someone should develop as a human being on a tennis court. And as long as you sort of care enough to guide them correctly and, and listen to their problems, no matter how trivial they might be. Um, well, they, they, I say that they sound trivial to you. It might be the most important thing in the world to that kid. Right. And right. that's uh, and that was something that I took from my awful experience at Kentucky where I was like, you know, I'm really struggling with, with this thing here. And it's, all I can think about, I'm losing sleep over it. I'm going and drinking on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. to try and forget about it. You think it means nothing. To me, it's destroying my whole life. Let me take that experience. And, you know, this kid that just failed his first ever math test that isn't even counting towards his GPA, and he's shown up three straight days of tennis and he can't play. How do I explain to that kid that, okay, I appreciate that to you, this is incredibly important. And this is how we're going to handle it. But in the big scheme of things, we've got bigger things to worry about. It really doesn't matter. And I think right. that, you know, having that level of care and understanding for things that might not seem massive, that allowed these kids to then sort of become a part of a program they felt very comfortable in. And, and that's when things started going really well professionally. It, right. It's interesting. It's interesting because, you know, a, a lot of kids, their love for the game can drastically change depending on the experience they have with one of their first few coaches, right? Because you have, you know, you know listen, <clears throat> for, especially like these Westchester clubs, you know, 
you have your you have the coaches that actually give a shit and they want to be there and they want to be mentors and they you know they actually care about the process and then you also do have the coaches that you know are there they're collecting the check they're looking at the time they're like all right you know see you guys next week you know as long as the parents are happy and you know let's keep it moving you know what i mean so um and and you know from what i've heard and from what you know what what you're telling me it sounds like you really focused on the the mentorship aspect, right? Not just being their tennis coach and making them the best players that they could be, but also being like a like a like a like a person that they could look up to and and could relate to in the other parts of their life. Yeah, I would well, I would hope so. Um, you know, because as I said, to me, my my coaches were the most important people in my life. Not you know, they if I had girl trouble at fifteen years old, I wasn't going to my school teachers. I wasn't going to my mom. It was either my big brother, my sister or my tennis coaches and a a lot of the time you know your your brother and sister they give you the best advice but you're like you've got to say that you're my family you're looking at your your tennis coaches like you don't have to say anything you 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 know and and i trust you with my life because tennis is my life and that was so when i made that transition to understanding that when these kids wake up in the morning, they, they don't, at least this is how I felt about it, but they don't feel like a school student. They don't feel like uh, someone who's going to go, they're a tennis player when they wake up. That's who they are. They do tennis player type things on the way to school. They talk about tennis while they're at school. They make decisions based on their practice schedule, their tournament schedule. So they're a tennis player all the time, regardless of their level. And I think if you, treat them that way and talk to them that way that's when they will then be like oh this guy actually does have my best interests at heart and you right. can give them that sort of advice where it's like yeah you know what the decisions you make in life are going to affect your tennis or the decisions you make at tennis are going to affect your life so let's find a way of combining the two and making sure that you know we're, we're coming up with a common goal here where where you're going to have good things happen versus the opposite which and, and the one thing I would always tell my students, I fucked up everything, every way you could imagine. 16 years old, going to too many parties, college, drinking too much, not going to fitness when I should have, doing things that ultimately destroyed my career when I got the yips, transferring when I shouldn't have, listening to the wrong people, letting them know that I messed up every possible opportunity that you could have to mess up, ended up okay. And telling them, this is why you should listen to me, that, that helps them out. Do you, because I, I mean, because I, I can, I mean, I've obviously been on the other side where a lot of, you know, I have coaches who I consider some of my best friends, you know, like they're, they're truly like, like you said, like if you go to one person, you know, it's going to be your tennis coach because they, they're the ones who, they don't have to say anything. Um, which was, was really well said. Um, do you find though, that you have to draw the line somewhere when it comes to your relationship with your students? Like, where do you, do you kind of draw boundaries where you can say, okay, I'm going to listen to everything that you, you know, you want to tell me, or you feel like you have to tell me, but you know, I, there is also a certain dynamic that has to occur within the relationship in order for this coaching student uh, situation to work to best benefit you as a tennis player sure and well y- yes a hundred percent there's there's a line and I, I think it's 
it's not a, a definitive line. Um, the line certainly moves based on the kid. Um, but I think, I don't know, I, I, it's, it's a lot like uh, that, that classic line, you know, it, you know it's porn when you see it. There's like, there's like that, like it's, it's not porn until it is. And it's like, it's like that kind of, it's like, I, we can talk about certain things until we can't. And we, right. we'll know, or I'll know when we can't talk about that anymore. Right. Um, right. You know, it, there's, there's as much as over, you know, the 12 years that I've been working with kids, the line has merged. There's always been lines between, well, what can I talk to, to female students about versus what can I talk to male students about? You know, I, I refuse, not refuse, but I'm very uncomfortable talking about relationships with, with girls. It's just, right. I, I, I never was one. I, I don't, I, or I can only talk about it from one side. I would always hire female pros if you want to have those level of conversations. Right. With guys, you know, they sometimes want to talk about certain relationships. And I'm like, oh, I can talk to you up to a point. But if, if you're going to talk about stuff that where we're bordering the inappropriate stuff I either shouldn't know about or don't feel comfortable talking about myself, we're going to draw the line right there. I can give you hypothetical advice on hypothetical situations that you may or may not encounter. Um, but yeah, there's, I think if, if that area or if that line gets crossed, from a professional standpoint, you put yourself in a really bad spot. Right. And, you know, it, I'm about to have my first child in two months. Congratulations. I'm not have, thank you. I, pre I appreciate that. Well, well, fingers crossed that it is mine. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll find out when he, when he shows up in a couple of months. Um, but, you know, I feel like if, it was, if it's going to be my son, there is no line. I'll talk to him about anything. I'll offer him advice, you know, until I have nothing left to give. Um, but remembering that I'm dealing with somebody else's child uh, has always been very important and, and making sure that, you know, I don't go into an area of conversation that would make the parent uncomfortable. Right. And very rarely has there been, I could probably count on one hand the times where a kid has come to me in a situation where I'm like, I'm not prepared to talk to you about this. Mm. And I'm, I'm always at the point where I'll call the parent. And be like, listen, you know, one example was a daughter got, you know, this was, it's got to be eight, 10 years ago. She was talking about how she got absolutely hammered at a party and guys drew all over her face and blah, blah, blah. And I said, all right, I've got advice that I want to give you, but I'm going to talk to your parents about it first. And they, I talked to them and they said, I want you to tell my daughter this. And I said to her, I said, look, you're lucky you, you got out of there with just marker pen on your face. Right. The next time you do that at a frat party or whatever, the consequences could be infinitely worse. And, um, you know, so again, I think if you, if you, the one thing I hope that any student I have when I'm giving this advice to, I hope I've built enough equity with them over time for them to know that it's coming from a, wow, this guy's actually trying to help me out. You know, I think you mentioned the problem with some of these coaches it, it, it could be everywhere. My coaching is really just sort of specific to Westchester. You know, you never know what, are they saying this just for a paycheck? Are they saying this because it might turn into a bunch more lessons? Are they just, you know, who knows what they're doing? Um, you know, so I just hope that the kids can sort of look at me and be like, oh, this guy's, you know, he's actually got my best interests at heart. Um, 
which is actually what made me fall in love with the job in the first place. You know, I, mm, right. I kind of feel like I have enough of a brain to earn more money doing things than you can do in tennis coaching, but was able to give that advice and actually help people the way I needed help once in my life. It sort of made the job rewarding and why I ended up in it. That's yeah. incredibly well, fulfilling. Uh, we we yeah. coach, we, we, we coach a little too. And, and I, I think it's the best job. I just think like, it's, it's, I don't know. It does, it's for me personally, it just doesn't feel like work. You know, it's, it's something it's you're, you're around a sport that you love and you know, you get, you get to deal with people, especially like when you're working with kids and they look up to you and you can, you know, help them, you know, with using the mistakes that you've made in your life so that they don't repeat it. It's just like, it's, it's almost like passing it down. You know what I mean? It's, it's because I remember the relationship that I've had with my coaches and I mean, they've shaped my life. So the idea that like, even though you're not actually thinking about it, what it's happening, you are in fact, like shaping a kid's life, you know, and, 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 you know, that could have really positive consequences if you do it correctly. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and yeah, this, to use the word, word fulfilling, that's really, I would hope that nobody stays in the coaching profession that doesn't feel that, you right. know, once, once that's gone, I think you owe it to everybody to, to get out. You know, I've, I've seen coaches who have been in the industry 30 plus years who they hate it at this point. And, you know, the unfortunate truth is you, you got people paying money for you to care. Um, especially, you know, there's, there's certain parts of coaching that I think you can just collect a paycheck. Um, you know, if, if adults just want to do cardio tennis, they want to listen to music and get a sweat on, you know, you stick your headphones in and feed like a chimpanzee and just go, Hey, let's go. Let's have a good time. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have to get, but if you're really going to specifically with, with kids, you know, cause they have real goals. And as I said, you, I, I again, just sort of circling back to when I was a kid, I remember just two or three lines that one of my coaches said to me that I still repeat to myself now. Like, you know, this is what he said to do in this situation. You know, I've got conflicting messages coming from here and here and here. Take a step back and think. And that was just one thing that a coach said to me when I was like 14 years old. Like, you don't have to say something immediately. You can think about it. And, and if, you know, over the, the thousand, two thousand kids I've coached, if they've got one moment in their life where they go, yeah, that stupid British coach I had once said something here and it helps that's that's worth that's all worth it do you how often do you train adults and do you enjoy training adults or yes yeah, so now you know this is sort of a tricky transition that i've made in my career over the last couple of years um i've i've started to transition more into the country club world oh you'd crush it you crush it <laughs> well so i've been i've been a country club director now at two places uh, I was a country club director at one club where I had my own academy and ran the club. And then the last couple of years, I was just at a, a club in Connecticut running uh, tennis, paddle tennis and pickleball. Um, I'm now working with an academy in Norwalk, Connecticut, uh, Intensity Academy, which is which is great. Um, as long as who I'm working with allows me to be myself and will allow me to help. I absolutely love it. Um, I can work with adults. I can work with anyone that's willing to listen and, and be helped. I struggle with the mindless hours. Right. Someone's just like, I just want to work out. Just make me sweat. I'm like, okay, I've got a, a high school kid that can do that for you. 
And they're like, no, I want the, I want the director at the same time. I'm like, well, I don't, that's not for me. You know, not at this point. I, I ground those hours out when I was younger. At this point, I'm like, if, if I'm going to be on the court with you, it's because I want to be and because I want to help you out. And at the same time, you know, I get as much fulfillment out of educating and helping as I do in entertaining people. Like I, I want to give people a good time, and which is that's why I, I enjoy the country club work is because I want people to show up to the club and leave going, wow, I, that was what a great day. You know, mm. I just had I just went to tennis. This guy made me laugh, gave me tons of good information, gave me a great workout. What a what a great experience I just had at that place. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm mixing in at the moment as well. I'm, I'm just imagining you at like a pro-am. And I'm I'm guessing there's a lot of people that would pay a lot of money just to have you be their doubles partner for like an hour and a half, well, and you just you know break out the cheeky banter and maybe maybe tell them some of the old stories, you know. Uh, it depends if they can listen to me for that long. Yeah, they they enjoy it, but after a while, they're like, Jesus, bro, well you just hit the damn ball. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but you know, yo, I, when I do pro ams, I'm chatting in the middle of the point most of the time. Yeah. Like I'm pulling out. I'm, I think it's hilarious. Like to throw out the granddad trick. Like point that way and hit it the other yeah. way. Oh, yeah. you know, yeah. like, oh, this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I do love a. Yeah. No, pro ams are good for me. A bit of banter out there at the same time. Um, how often? How often do you break out that uh, that Andy Murray story? And and actually, can you tell it for people that don't know what I'm talking about? What do you want? The, what do you want? The truth or the banter? Um, give me. Give know, me both. Uh, well, so well, it's, well now we're, we're putting this out publicly. We're, we're killing me for the rest of my life here. Uh, no, so so the true story is so when I was I was eighteen and he was sixteen, um, I played Andy Murray in the first round of an ITF, and I lost to him one and four. And about six months later, he was losing seven five in the third at Queens to Thomas Johansson. He was he was a monster, um, and. And I've got a couple of Andy Murray stories. You know, I remember one, we were at 14 and under nationals when he was 12. And we, it was raining, shockingly. And so it was me, his brother, a bunch of other guys who were, you know, as I said, probably the round of 32 at nationals. So whoever the top 32-ish players were in the country. And I remember we were all playing ping pong, eating Snickers bars, drinking cans of Coke. And so this would have been in like, 99 or something like that and so there was this big area where everyone had put their tennis bags and i remember andy was laying on the ground with his coach with his walkman i don't even know if you guys know what a walkman is listening yeah, to a cassette with his headphones in stretching his legs and so there's like seven of us playing around the world ping pong literally yelling at him like oh look at this guy stretching during the rain what you, and <laughs> one guy I, I can't remember who said it but one guy literally said to him oh what you're going to be number one in the world <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah yes yeah he was and and then so i played him at the same venue actually a few years later and to this day i've tried to explain it to people and i can't wrap my head around it it took me a set and a game. I remember I was six, six, one, one love down to wrap my head around the fact that his arms would go at one speed, like, and the ball would be on me before I knew what to do. And I, I played some good, good players. You know, I played Jesse Witten, who was number two in the country in college at 30 in the country. I played some other guys who ended up making pro. To this day, I can still picture Andy on the other side of the net and his arms are going like this. 
and the ball and I didn't know what to do it was just it was almost like it didn't make sense just how big and how clean he was hitting all the time um and the uh, the story I like to tell at bars obviously uh when anybody asks uh and tennis comes up and this is you know what this frank all right this is more frank's <laughs> fault than, than mine okay so I used to, way back in the day, back in my single days, used to tell people that I had beaten Andy Murray. And they'd be like, yeah. oh, that's so cool. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm also a prosthetic limb salesman or an astronaut <laughs> or something else. You know, like I used to be a gymnast. You know, you're going to believe anything I say. But to this day, now I'm 36 years old. And Frank and I'll be out having a glass of wine. And tennis will come up and he'll be like, he beat Andy Murray. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Jesus, we have the internet on our phones now. They're just going to look it up and be like, no, you didn't. Yeah, all right, thanks. But yeah, so yeah, the, the fake story, the fake story is that I've actually got a two and one winning record over yeah. Andy Murray. That's, um, that's what Frank, yeah, Frank yeah. was like, yeah, he's beaten Andy Murray twice. That's yeah, it. never, never <laughs> let the truth get in the way of a good story, boys. That's going to be the, the first lesson I teach my son is, is you don't have to, the, you and the truth can be loosely affiliated. They don't yeah. have to be exclusive. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking the score must change depending on how many drinks you've had, right? Oh, like, yeah, especially when you were single. Yeah, I think after like six martinis, I beat the guy one and one routinely <laughs> once. Yeah, that might have been in the semis of uh, Junior Australian Open, I think, once as well. Yeah, I think that was when I got him. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, nothing, no no actual truth to that, I'm afraid. Just a loss, yeah. which uh, which you can find online. That's so, so funny. So now, you know, you, you've made... Or, or maybe you're making currently the, the the transition to you know a career in social media possibly, um, you know kind of what what led you to start posting on TikTok to begin with, um, and you know how do you come up with the ideas? Like I've seen a few of them, like the the Mary to the to Pharaoh ones are like yeah. might be my favorite, like the, like the ones with the, like the the parked cars and and then the the baby the baby photos on the fridge and you're like also i found these shoes like i don't like these don't i don't know, know what these are. fit yeah exactly like so, gold man gold so well so i'd all so my after i graduated college my goal was to get into media some way or another i wanted either my actual my dream is to be a game show host that's what i want to be <laughs> in my life like i because I, I think i could just make fun of people that give ter terrible answers and but that's uh well that's for way down yeah. the road. Um, so I'd always done little videos here or there, you know, over a decade, whether it was on Instagram or Facebook, I'd always just thrown these things out there and nothing ever really happened. And right at the end of 2019, sort of October, 2019, I, I wasn't working at my old country club job. I was sort of just trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I was doing a, you know, one job in Manhattan, one job in New Jersey, not even in coaching at that point. I was sort of just trying to work out what my next move was. Have you guys heard of Gary Vaynerchuk? The, yes. the social media. Yeah, so, we love so, Gary. So Gary's, I mean, he's, he's the man. So at the time I was following him and I was like, you know, this guy, everything he says makes a lot of sense to me personally. Like do this, you, you know, because I was what, 30 three at the time, starting to feel too old for new careers. And he was like, I didn't start a new career till I was 36. Yeah. And he was like, you just got to go. And I was like, I, I like what this guy's saying. You know, he's, he's motivating me. And he started saying, if you enjoy making content, this new app 
that right now just seems to be 13-year-old girls dancing in their bedrooms is blowing up. And I remember back when Instagram first came out and I was one of the first people to get Facebook because, you know, 2005, it was only for college kids and Kentucky at the time was one of the first ones to get it. And I remember when Instagram came out and I was like, I don't need Instagram. What are you talking about? I've got Facebook. What's this? Just Instagram nonsense. And completely missed that opportunity to be on Instagram early. And when he started talking about TikTok, I was like, you know what? Let me trust this guy. If he's wrong, he's, he's wrong. And I was doing these. This is what it's like being married to Farah videos on Instagram. I had maybe, I think I had nine videos at the time. Mm-hmm. So I just uploaded all of them at once. Whether it was, this is what it's like being married to Farah. We have a designated area for our keys to go. There's no keys. Ha ha. You know, this, is, <laughs> this is what it's like, actually. You know, this is real life. What, what about this one? Um, I've just gotten home. It's 10 o'clock at night. We have a one-car garage. She's parked outside. The garage is empty. I'm parking <laughs> on the street. Just simple like this is. And so I uploaded nine episodes and went to bed. Woke up in the morning to, like, across the nine videos, 1.2 million views and, and 75,000 likes. Crazy. And was like, what? Like people watched my stuff and, and the algorithm just sort of picked up a couple because of watch time and everything else. Mm. And I was like, hang on, it, it, you know, overnight I've got 785 followers now. That's kind of cool. And so just started making every day a 15 second video about situations that were going on in my life. And after maybe three weeks or a month was up to sort of five or 6,000 followers and was like, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. Let's see what happens if I start throwing some comedy ideas out there. So I started doing some skits where standing in front of this white wall, I just talked to myself in two different t-shirts mm-hmm. and, and that December. So I'd been doing it for a couple of months. I think I was up to maybe 25,000 followers at this point did a video making fun of one of the girls dances and the language that they were dancing to was particularly vulgar. <laughs> and I just sort of did a video that was when I was 13 years old, we would learn in the Macarena. That was, yeah. <laughs> that was the dance we were doing. Now we're, you know, talking about sexually explicit things to the baby and doing dances like that. So I did this <laughs> video and it got 38 million views in two days. And it just went, and it was everywhere. It was showing up on Instagram. It was showing up on YouTube. It was showing up on Fuck Jerry. It was on meme accounts. It was everywhere. And that video got me about quarter of a million followers, you know, over three days. And it was from then where I just went, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm funny. Maybe people actually like this stuff. And so just kept coming up with crazy ideas for a bit. Um, started working a new country club job right after lockdown. So I really had to kind of tone down how often I was making videos um, while I was doing that. I just left that job at the end of, of last year. And so that's given me a bit more freedom to be like, all right, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to just make sure I'm making videos that nobody can get upset about. Um, so in the last two and a half weeks, I've picked up another 400,000 followers 
you know, my stuff, you know, I've had some videos go mega viral over the last week. I've got ones that are like 23 million views since I posted it five days ago. That's absurd. Um, so, yeah, but it's just, you know, I think there's, because I got on early and got the ball rolling a little bit, and I also understand the algorithm where, you know, it's all about watch time, likes, shares, how can you grab people's attention, blah, blah, blah. And I've, I think you might have got, I'm really up as well. Like, I've, there's a lot going on up here all the time. Like, I'm a broken man. And so, you know, there's, I'm constantly trying to think of ways to make people laugh, situations that are going on. Like, you know, I see what happens in the news and I'm like, my brain goes to one different place. And so now I just sort of throw these videos out that take me a total of 20 minutes to, to put together. And, and I really enjoy doing it. And I just don't, I don't know if there's a career in it. I, I would love for there to be one. Um, but as I sort of mentioned before, if, I, if I'm just getting to make people happy, if I'm getting to entertain people or make people laugh or help them on a tennis court, as long as I'm bringing something to someone, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Um, but, you know, that's sort of the long-winded answer to how social media started. It was just kind of a joke. And thanks to Gary V saying, you're not too old. I was like, all right, let's, let's go. Yeah. As soon as, Gary. as soon as, <laughs> sorry, Steve, as soon as you mentioned Gary V, I saw Steven go, yeah, <laughs> this, this, <laughs> this guy, how many, how many NFTs do you have? Yeah. <laughs> um, or what, or what about when he's like, when he's like, uh, 37 is young as f dude. Meanwhile, he's like, I just shut up, Gary. I just slept funny, bro. <laughs> you, know, you don't know what 37 really feels like, dude. Like, I got a stiff neck because somebody called my name over there. I'm like, ah, oh, that's three weeks. Yeah, yeah. there we go. Oh my, <laughs> oh my yeah. God. It's so funny. It's so funny when he throws out like random numbers too. He's like, he's like, if you want to be a content creator, you have to put out six to 17 different content pieces a week or whatever the f And, yeah, and, and he's like what? munching on blueberries and he's, he's not wrong though. No. Yeah. Like I'm almost certain if you just... The the only well actually I was gonna say the only thing you really need to, to do what he says is have a bit of a bankroll behind you. But you don't even need that because he does all those videos where he goes to, to garage sales. Yeah. And, and just flips. and by the way, he just murders people out of their oh, stuff. Yeah. They're like they're trying to sell an old blanket for four dollars. He's like, I'll give you two. They're like, I just I'm hungry, Gary. Yeah. yeah. I just need some no. noodles. Yeah. I'll give you two dollars for it. Yeah, and he's like it's he's like and that. that He'll he'll be like he'll be like I just ripped that lady's face off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, no, the front be... door's hanging off, and he's like, "I've got fifty billion in the bank, but you ain't getting my two dollars." Didn't get it. Yeah. The worst, the worst is when he has like he'll buy stuff that people have spent like time making. Like, there's like I think there's a video of him buying like a toy car that you can drive, and the guy was trying to sell it for like hundred fifty dollars. I think he bought it for like. 20 50 like he he literally, it 50. was it 50 he didn't even want it <laughs> yeah. he didn't even want it he was just like i i just know i can get it for 50 so i'm just gonna get it for the, for the yeah, camera probably just set it on fire on the guy's front <laughs> lawn it was like that's what i think of your efforts go try harder go be better yeah so no, he's good I, look I, it's he's... Funny, the one thing if i ever met him which i hope i do one day i would be like gary look you know for what it's worth even if the TikTok thing and Instagram, whatever it is, turns into nothing, the amount of joy I've had out of it over the last two years, just making these videos and going viral and, you know, the amount of lovely comments I've gotten, I'd be like, thanks for that, at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's actually, so he's a big reason of why, like, we started Just Slap too. Like, he, it's just because it's like, he's like, do, you know, do what you love, like, focus on that. And he, he's, 
his story is very, very, uh, you know, it's an amazing story. You know, immigrant kid from Belarus, like to, to accomplish all that he's accomplished. And the fact that he was like he people made fun of him, like up until like his early 30s, because he was just like focusing on his like he built his parents business and mm-hmm. got none of it. And then it's just he's just winners win, you know, and he's just a, he's just a winner. And and I, I I also would like love to meet him because I'm I'm a massive fan. But I, it's just that's that's funny that that uh, I I. I wonder how many people that have like made it like you and like in, in any sort of, you know, aspect of social media credit it, a piece of that to, to Gary V. I'm guessing it's, yeah. a, it's a high percentage. Well, it's funny you say, it's, I, I don't think I've made anything, you know, I, I, my goal, I, hopefully I'll hit 2 million followers on TikTok at some point next week, the way the amount of followers I'm getting, which, you know, I, I don't know what made it means. Um, I think you know, 38 million views on a video counts as me. Yeah, I'm I could pretty be sure wrong. that's made but, it. What, <laughs> but I'm pretty I've sure. I've been, I've been recognized five times in my life. That's it, five. <laughs> you know, so it's not like people know who I am or anything. Um, so, you know, I'm not making a, a living out of it. I can't support my wife and, and child, soon to be child out of it. So I haven't really, but, I, you know, I think the, the, the thing that he preaches, which is something that, I think is an incredibly powerful message to everyone and, and credit for you guys for doing this podcast and doing it. You can make so much money being miserable and it means nothing. nothing. Like, it, you know, I've met like half the guys I teach at these country clubs, they have $20 million a year finance jobs. And all they want to talk to me about is, is how much they hate it and how much they wish they were a tennis pro. Oh, you get to teach tennis all day. You get to be outside. You get to banter with people. You get to pay. What a dream scenario that is. And sometimes I'm thinking to myself, yeah, dude, I'm scraping to make mortgage payments on some months. Meanwhile, you've got a $15 million house. And yet I seem inherently a lot happier internally than, than you are. And I think, you know, that's Gary's message, right? Like happiness is the most important thing. And I think when you've if you're if you're lucky enough to not have experienced what unhappiness is, which I've only a couple of times been in that situation, you know, doing what you love is is so important, and you know that you can't put a price on it. A hundred percent. I yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is like I feel like and now you know with the great resignation, I feel like a lot more people during this period of time kind of figured out that like, you know, like what am I doing? You know, like yeah. why why am I choosing to be miserable? for sure. a, a 25% larger paycheck. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense, you know? And, and yeah. uh, he's also a massive tennis fan, by the way. I don't know if you knew that, but he's, he's a huge tennis uh, fan. I didn't, so, but you know what? The one thing I could, I could guess if he is a tennis guy, just slap is not how he would go about his, his tennis game. He's going to grind no. and yeah. he's gonna be out there for hours. See, yeah. the, part of the reason why I was so, so encouraged to do this, it, just slap was exactly how I played when I was half decent. <laughs> like if I had a rally of seven, I might as well have just sat down and been like, all right, you, you, uh, you got it. You, yeah, won. I'm you got it. I actually used to own a pair of customized Nike shoes that had hack and slap written on the tongues. Like that was, that was literally how I played. But yeah, Gary V would be like, you know what? We, we should just go to this person's front yard and, and grind for 50 cents rather than, than yeah. play here. hundred percent. I could, I could also like imagine you like 30 feet behind the baseline, kind of like a big deuce point, just like uh down line winner. No problem. Bang. You know, Bang. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the biggest shots I ever hit, one of the most important shots I ever hit in my life, actually. Um, 
I was playing a guy named Marco Bourne, who actually, he ended up playing at Middle Tennessee. He was a six foot 10 German dude. And I beat him 7-5 in the third. The only break I got was at five all in the third. And I, li- I did exactly that. I went second serve return from, it's got to be 19 feet behind the baseline and about four feet wide of the doubles line. I just went, I know this guy's going kick it in my backhand because my backhand was woeful. And I just ran around it. And I don't, I think my eyes were closed from the moment he made contact. And I did exactly what you just said. I went, um, this is it. This is my moment. I just hit the ball as hard as I could. I, I somehow went in and I was like that, that, that'll have to do boys. That'll have to do. It's amazing. That's awesome. One of the, um, one of the two winning stories I can still remember. Most of all, all I've got up here now is just yips into the bottom of the net and crying at night time. Do you, do you feel like, I'm, I'm just curious, do you feel, have there been any pressures that come with the whole, you know, now that you've kind of blown up on, on TikTok? I mean, I think last time, last I saw you had 1.5 million. I mean, you were saying you, you're hoping to get to 2 million um, in the very near future. Are there any pressures that you feel posting on TikTok or is it solely enjoyment? Like, is it purely just, you know, you're still enjoying the process and are, are kind of posting for fun? Um. That's a, that's a good question, actually. So I, I don't feel any pressure. Um, I could stop doing it tomorrow and it wouldn't really affect my life too much. Um, I, I, I sometimes, like I used to just post every thought that came into my head and I would have a list of 75 ideas and I would just go through them and there would, you know, it, it wouldn't matter to me whether it was good, if it did well or not. I, I try and be more selective now about videos that I think are going to do well, mm. um, which I think is why over the last, you know, as I said, over the last really 10 days, I've picked up 400,000 new followers. I think I just, just hit 1.9 million now this morning. Um, it, I wouldn't call it pressure. It's more, you know, the, the one thing I do notice is I do start to get a little bit irritable with myself if I haven't thought of something I think is good by sort of one or two o'clock in the afternoon, like I have to leave for work at two 30 every day. Cause I coach from now uh, three to nine 30 PM. And if I'm starting to get to the middle of the day and I'm like, I really haven't thought of anything funny yet. I'm start, I start to like question myself. Um, mm. But I've got, I don't know, pressure. No, well, there's no, I wouldn't say it's pressure cause there's no downside. You either do it and you know, people like it or they don't um i think if it was if it was my career and i had to make real money from it i would think differently but at the moment it's still just you know funny idea comes in funny idea comes out i put you know the kind of the sad thing as well as i put so little effort into them like i literally just have my ring light and a white wall and two t-shirts like half the time I'm not even wearing pants when I'm doing these videos, you know, it's just from, it's from here up. I leave enough room to put a tag above it. And I, I write the script in 25 seconds. Oh yeah, that would be funny. And then I say it, you know, I don't even do multiple takes of it anymore. Like I just say it once. I'm like, that, that'll do. And that'll if it, do. If it, yeah. And then sometimes it comes out funny, you know, every once in a while, my dog will bark at me while I'm in the middle of saying something about, Oh God, I've got to do that again. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, 
if I if it's funny, it goes out there, you know. And yeah. so I try and I try and do one a day. But the way the world is right now, we have a global pandemic going on. We have so many things in the world that people desperately need to laugh at. Yeah, I think if you can just find some common ground for people, you know, the one thing I, I never really try and do too much is is pick a political side. Right. You know, I don't want to upset people with my humor. I just want to pick something that we can all agree upon and get a bit of a giggle at. And you know, if it brings 27 seconds of joy to somebody's day, that's 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 a good time. No, 100 percent. And, and you know, I think not only, you know, is it great that you're doing something that you're passionate about and then you like doing, but the fact that you're making millions of people laugh. I mean, I don't I can't think of something better someone can do. Uh, yeah, that's the, well, that's a, that's a cool way to think about it. You know, well, I'm either making millions of people laugh or I'm making a bunch of teenagers be like, Ooh, get off <laughs> this guy. Like, I don't want anything to do. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, so I've, I never do this. My wife and I, last night, we decided just to go through the comments and 99.9% .9 of the time, the people are so nice, which I think might have something to do with, I'm just not threatening to anybody. I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm not that attractive. I'm married. I've got a kid jacked. on the way. Like I'm kind of <laughs> jacked a little bit though. Been working hard in the gym. Um, all natural, by the way, if you can't tell, no steroids no. here. I know you might be surprised. Um, but we decided to go through and just see if we could find some, some, some hate comments. And we we found three obviously within the first like minute and mm. and i was like i don't know if i want to continue with this one guy was like you need to learn how to shave your neckline i was like all right let's come on it's been a week we don't have to do that one person commented what is that scar on your neck and i looked at the video and i was like that's just a f wrinkle like come on we don't have to do that you know, another and then another person commented, "Oh, I see you're combing forward on the sides," and then put like hashtag widow's peak or something because I'm receding back here. I was like, I'm just not doing this anymore. I don't want to be a part of these hate comments. It's all the yeah. it's all the thirteen year olds too. You know, it's like all the you know the it's always the younger crowd that just digs deep and tries to find just, little things just, ways to get you. I don't know, dude. But there's been some there's been some like sixty year olds that I've seen that comment on our videos. Like there was this one guy, and this is this is something that we're trying to move away from. But like in the beginning, I would just clap back because like there would be yeah. like some six year old person like that like he'd be like, oh, you're saying Novak Djokovic wrong. And then I'd be like, I'd be like, well, how do you say it? And then the guy's like, it's actually Novak Djokovic. And I'm like, well, that's not it. So then what I would do is I would take a link of Djokovic saying his name, paste it, and I'd be like, shape up, bud. And then, and then like, like eventually is, how, I got old. How can you have that conversation in text? You're both just writing Novak Djokovic. No, it's Djokovic. It's Djokovic. No. Yet somehow somebody's saying it differently in their head. They're like, what, is, what does he mean? What side is yeah. he on? No, um, ex exactly. Exactly. But, and I remember yeah, I, was, I, was, I was talking to Alex when this was going on, and I was like, Alex, we're going to war. I don't know who this person is, but they have no idea what they're talking about. Alex is like, Stephen, you gotta, it's, it's four o'clock in the morning. You gotta go to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, but the, the one thing is, uh, I, I try, and this is another Gary Veeism, is I try and never let the highs be too high or the lows be, be too low at this point. Yeah. You know, some, when, when my video goes viral, like the other day, 24, 22 million views, whatever it's at right now, 
feels great. It's very exciting that you see all these people watching and all the lovely comments. You, you post a video two days later and it gets 25,000 views. You know, uh, nobody's enjoying it. You could be up and down all over the place. And it's the same thing with the comments. The, the truth be told that what really sort of helped me think about when people make nasty comments is I'm like, where would I have to be in my life? What headspace would I have to be in to be watching somebody doing something, whatever it is, whether it's they're making fishing content or, or if it's a tennis podcast, doing something they have a passion for, for me to then be like, I dislike what you're doing and I'm going to vocalize that. Like, I'm going to take where? the time. I'm going to take uh, right. the time to literally write a, some nasty thing. Yeah, it right. Like not, where, yeah. yeah where, where am I at at that point? Like, how, how, what's happening in my house that's making me then try and bring some negativity to your day? You know, and I, I just, as I, I actually just feel bad for people at that point. Like, if they, if you're going out of your way to just write hate on other people's stuff, like, just go talk yeah. to somebody about it, man. Like, you got, you got bigger things going on. That's very empathetic of you, Coach Greg. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think empathy is important. Other than speaking of Djokovic, delighted that that guy <laughs> just got sent home from Australia absolutely delightful. you know what the funny part yeah. of this if you pull up me and alex's text in the quotes where we had like little topic points of what we wanted to talk about at the very end it's novak deported question mark yes. <laughs> the fact that Goodbye. you just brought that up yeah so to, to give you an idea one of my two dogs is named roger so if that okay. lets you know where, where i'm at in terms of okay. who my tennis idol is yeah um yeah. as much as i dislike nadal's tennis game uh i i I hate the lack of flair and that he's just done it with brute force and athleticism and sheer determination and hard work. I can't stand Djokovic. <laughs> just, you know, I, I, I don't, it's weird. So like I, I support Liverpool at home. Right. And I despise Manchester United. I hate everything yep. Manchester United stands for, but if I met David Beckham or a Manchester United legend, I wouldn't hate them. I kind of, I hate the fact that they're not Liverpool. Right. And mm. that's sort of how I feel about Djokovic. Like, he's probably going to go down as the best ever, which I bothers me because I'm such a big Federer fan and I respect Nadal so much. Right. I, I just, re I hate the fact that he's not one of those two guys. And, uh, you know, just this whole didn't get vaccinated, still went to Australia, blatantly lied to people about it, blamed it on your team. I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm really happy that it's happening to, to him versus happening to anybody else. Um, I don't necessarily wish anything bad to happen to the guy. I just don't like the fact that he's not Federer and Nadal. Um, but you know, the the cynic in me, and you were saying I'm empathetic. If it's <laughs> if this shit's going to happen to anybody, yeah, Djokovic, it can happen to. I'm I'm okay with that. Well, first of all, uh, I wish you'd told me about the whole I hate Man U thing because maybe, maybe we would have had a, a little <laughs> bit of a different conversation in the beginning. But um, oh, are you, but, you're not Manchester United. Greg's like, oh, oh, oh I am. I am. Oh, God. All right, guys, <laughs> this has been fun. Just, <laughs> think, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> um, but that's fantastic. Um, but no, I mean, like, just think about it. Imagine imagine if like fed was like you're not allowed to play like you're you're deported from england you're not playing wimbledon or nadal with the french could you like 
I'm just trying to think, like, would you think people's reactions would be worse? I, I think well, for sure. Yeah, his, yeah, yeah. Here's uh, what well, I think one of the biggest issues with what has happened with Djokovic in Australia is that if you take into account that they've had some of the strictest lockdown restrictions in the world. Yeah. And he's just not that well liked anyway. <laughs> it, those things combined led this to happen because he, he was in, he had the exemption, he got through, he had the necessary paperwork. And when the country found out, it was the public that went, no, 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 no. A, we've had to do all this stuff and B, we don't like this guy for the most part. So then the prime minister steps in and says, you know, I've got to listen to the Australian people here. We've got to throw the book at this guy. I think if it was Nadal in Paris or Roger in London, Wimbledon, the country would have gone, come on, look, he's, we yeah. love this guy. You know, yeah. he's done the paperwork. There was a mistake but we love him. You know, mm. he, he doesn't want to hurt us. He's Roger. You know, this is Rafa in Paris. He is Paris. Yeah. Australians are like, we don't care that you've won this tournament nine times. You're a <laughs> you've broken the rules. You've lied about it. Like he's just not that universally beloved to get a pass, which I'm, I'm good with. Cause I don't think he, he deserves it. And again, it's, I think that I, someone mentioned this to me the other day. They said that, Djokovic is a little bit like when Carmelo Anthony was in New York. The only thing Melo ever did wrong in New York is that he wasn't LeBron. Yeah. That was like the only right. thing he did wrong is that he wasn't LeBron. And I think Djokovic's biggest curse is that he's not Federer or Nadal. He's every bit the tennis player they are, if not better. Mm -hmm. He's just mm -hmm. not them. Well, he and also does some questionable things though. Like during the pandemic, the whole shirtless club, like with the, with the boys, like the, the 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 dancing, and then he also like, I'm pretty sure he tested positive on like the 17th, or it was like the 17th of September. He got a positive test, and then he went to an event and maskless. like maskless, taking pictures with people. Like, yeah, but if you, you just but don't if you look see into Fed and Nadal doing that type of stuff, I don't know. At least I haven't seen that. No, but that's that's exactly it, right? You see um, Dimitrov doing it. You see... Uh, oh, yeah. You see uh, Tsitsipas out there doing things, kind of out there just partying, whatever. You see Zverev out there. They're not... No one likes those guys either. <laughs> but, no but, what's their, guys but, so, but they're all doing that, which is probably the same as everybody else, but they're not Mr. Perfect, which is Federer and Nadal. Yeah, you know, and they've, you know, Fed and Nadal just set that they set new bars of what the expectations are for professional tennis players at unreachable mm. levels. Like, right. Federer just won fan favorite for like the nineteenth straight year last year. <laughs> he didn't even play. He doesn't even play. He's gonna win it. He's gonna win it in like four years' time it. when he's two and a half years retired. He's fan favorite. He's gonna be like, guys, you have to give this to someone else now. I haven't played a match in three years. So that's, funny. Yeah, I genuinely think they're gonna give him wild cards if he wanted to. He could be like like seventy five years old in like the doubles, and he'll yeah. get a wild card because it's better in any tournament ever. So if he really wanted to, this guy can play tennis forever. 
<laughs> and yeah. I'm pretty sure which, people will let him. Which I think that's why Uniqlo gave him that clothing deal. Do you remember that? Like yeah. three years yeah, ago, that... they gave him a 10-year clothing deal that took him till he was like 46. Yeah. Crazy. I think they're just assuming that he's just going to be going out there playing a bit of dubs. Yeah. <laughs> he's just, 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 getting just for fun. Cheeky. Dubs. Cheeky, yeah. yeah. And he's probably still going to win. As long as he doesn't have to move, he'll just hands his way around it as well. Yeah. Another thing is curious. Do you think, do you think, I guess, do you think Novak would be more liked if he was like, let's say from the US or if he was from London or if he's from Germany? Like, 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 what, what, like, what do you think? Like, do you think that because he is from Serbia, that that has a, a, you know, an implication on, you know, how loved he can possibly be? You know, it's tough because Eastern Europeans do get a, a tough rap a lot of the time. Mm. Um, you know, whether they're from any of those, you know, used to be Czechoslovakia countries or what used to be the USSR. They, yeah, they get it a, a little tougher, but I, I don't know, man. I mean, that's, that's a really good question. I, I, you know what? Apart, I, I don't think so. I think it's he's just brought most of this on himself. Um, you know... Look, the, the one thing that I, th I think he's he's taken some shots at some things and he's missed. Like the way he does his four corners of the court celebration when he wins. Mm -hmm. I think that's a miss. I, I think somebody yeah. should have told him very early on, listen, don't don't blow kisses at the crowd like this. You you are trying to gain their respect, not just be like bow down to me like I'm I'm the man. Um right. He's look. He pegged a ball boy in the face a couple of years ago, uh, in in a, a the, yeah, hissy the, the... fit that he had at the U.S. Open. Um, you know, he's had instances where he's lined up a couple of rackets and just snapped them. He screams at his box. You know, he does stuff that, again, the Federer and Nadal don't do. But he also, I I think he does it in he just does things in a way that just rub people the wrong way. Yeah. And, I don't think that necessarily has anything to do with the fact that he's from Serbia. Um, I'm trying to think of if there's other athletes. I mean, yeah, maybe. But again, I was going to use Medvedev as an example. He's rubbed people the wrong way, and, and he's Russian. But again, that's he's but he owns it himself. I think that's the difference. Yeah. He owns he, that. Yeah, he is like a like a mini villain. You know, like he like he he that's throws true. a tantrum and he's like F you guys. Like I don't give a. Sh yeah, you know. that's yeah, that's a good point. Well, and Djokovic is a little bit like, why don't you love me? Like, what yeah. more if I will be be likable? You know, yeah. you, you're a. That's why. Be, yeah. Um, yeah, don't we've be you. To... Have you have you considered yeah. not being you for a week? See if that works. <laughs> be someone we, else. We've actually we've talked about this before. If 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 Djokovic was sort of like a Conor McGregor esque kind of athlete, like where he was just like, I'm the best. I can say whatever I want. I could do whatever I want. If you just if he was like that, I think yeah. he'd be even more loved. I think people would go crazy for him. Yeah, which is, you know, you almost, you know, I, I use Kyrgios as an example with a lot of my, my students. Kyrgios went through a real dip in popularity for a while. Mm. And now I find he's as popular as any pro tennis player with kids that play tennis. They, they love him because he's like, he just went all in on being himself and yeah. said, I'm going to be this guy that I'll show you that I really don't care that much. I'm going to showboat. I'm going to goof around. I'm going to tank some weeks. And this is who I'm, I'm going to be. And 
to Medvedev, to the Medvedev point, he's the same. He's like, yeah, I'm the bad guy. You know, I just won the US Open. I just beat Djokovic in straights. And my celebration is to lie down and pretend to be a fish. <laughs> like, the, yeah, just I'm going to be a dead fish. A on FIFA celebration. Yeah, like literally good, a FIFA celebration. Yeah, good, good for you. And, and I think, yeah, you know, to, to the Djokovic point, who, you know, if, if you had to answer, answer that question, like if someone said, you know, describe Novak Djokovic, I don't know who he is. I mean, some weeks he's this guy, some weeks he's a nice guy, some weeks he's a some weeks he's the villain, some weeks he's trying to be adored. You know, who who really knows who who that guy is? And I think that's why he doesn't have that following is because he's not, out of all of them, he's like the least relatable. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's and he's had and he's had the exact same haircut since he was like twelve as well. <laughs> it just doesn't move. I don't think it grows. His, he's got the his like Lego hair. It doesn't grow. Yeah. It stays yeah. the same. It doesn't yeah. recede. It's just, which that's another reason why I don't like the guy. I look at Federer and Nadal, and I'm like, Rog is struggling a little bit. Yeah, Rafa Rafa's got the any thinner. Like yeah. Murray now, his hairline's gone back. Like Djokovic. You and your strong you with your hairline. perfect hairline. <laughs> not, not what we're doing. It's not what Damn we're it. here for. Yeah, yeah, like, you oh, and your you, perfect you don't, you don't have any body fat. And <laughs> your, your beard doesn't grow. And your hairline doesn't recede. Out. Yeah, yeah out. Yeah. You can be the nicest <laughs> yeah. guy in the world. Those three things alone, yeah. out. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, oh, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a blast. Uh, the only thing we needed was maybe a couple of, I mean, it's a little early uh, out here on the East coast, but uh, maybe next time, if you want to come back on, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll maybe do it in person and uh, have a few pints. Um, you don't have to ask me twice. And by the way, <laughs> it's, 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 it's two o'clock in the afternoon. Technically I'm already two hours late. So uh, I'm, I'm good for beers anytime, anytime. Amazing. Amazing oh, guys, okay. everybody, you know, all 300 and whatever subscribers that we have go follow his tiktok i know that's going to really push you up there uh there greg but, hey, we'll, we'll, um, hey, they all they all count mate they're, they're all yeah. they're all worth a cent and a half so we'll, we'll take listen <laughs> listen just slap subscribers we're, we're they're few but they're 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 definitely strong and they're definitely they're, loyal they're, so they're, uh, they're, pa- they're powerful they're, they're, exactly hey, three, hey, the 300 if you've got leonidas at the front that's that's all you need there you go there you go um but uh, no thank thank you really thank you so much we really appreciate it uh guys like comment subscribe so we can get more real deal guests like greg here on and uh stay healthy stay happy and as always just slap take care